Hello and welcome listeners to this episode of Decisive Point, our new podcast series for the U.S. Army War College Press. The Decisive Point gets to the heart of the matter with interviews with some of our most distinguished authors. Today I would like to introduce Nina Jankowicz and Henry Collis, authors of Enduring Information Vigilance, Configuring Government for the Post-COVID Information Environment. This article can be found in our autumn issue of Parameters. Currently, Ms. Jankowitz serves as the Disinformation Fellow for the Science and Technology Innovation Program at the Wilson Center. She studies the intersection of democracy and technology in Central and Eastern Europe. Her book, How to Lose the Information War, will be published this summer. Henry Collis just completed a tour as a Deputy Director for Security and Defense Projects in Britain's Cabinet Office Communications Team. Welcome to Decisive Point, Nina and Henry. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. So first, please tell us what prompted your professional interest in the subject of disinformation. Sure. Well, Henry and I actually met when we were both working in Ukraine on disinformation issues in that country, which, of course, is one of the front lines of the information war. My own interest in disinformation started when I was working at the National Democratic Institute on Russia and Belarus programming. Um, And we were kind of at the receiving end of a lot of Kremlin propaganda, although it wasn't cool at that time to to be working in that stuff. Um, And then when the Ukraine conflict started, I really wanted to go out into the field and, uh, and do what I could to help the Ukrainian government um, deal with that challenge. And so I did a Fulbright Clinton Public Policy Fellowship where I was a strategic communications advisor to the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry. Uh, Henry happened to be in the cabinet office at the same time. um, And I think we've both found the disinformation issue interesting and vexing over the past couple of years. But Henry has his own interesting experience that I'm sure he'd love to share. Sure, I guess my... um first experience of working on counter-propaganda issues was working in support of the counterinsurgency mission in Afghanistan, where I worked at HQ ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force, in Kabul for three years, um, up until 2013, uh, which is, um, yeah, that was my first exposure to counter-propaganda uh, issues and working also on counter-foreign interference issues in uh, in, in Afghanistan um, before coming back to the UK and working on this broad set of issues that I think have come to be known as sort of, you know, hybrid uh, hybrid warfare. So looking at other domains like cybersecurity um, and then uh, ending up in Ukraine, working on secondment to Ukrainian government, which is where I met Nina. And since then, we're having the, the um, privilege to work with a lot of our allies and partners across Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe. Um, on understanding the challenges that we all face and how we can face them more effectively together. Great, great. So in your article, you both discuss the exploitation of the democratic information environment, which you say is the one vulnerability that has touched more nodes of society and government than any other. Can you elaborate on that, please, for our listeners? Sure. So I think particularly this is visible during the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Often we think of 
disinformation as a national security issue, and it definitely is. But in COVID-19, we've seen disinformation touching public safety and public health. Uh, it touches the education sector. It touches certainly our, our national security and sovereignty issues, and it touches democratic processes as well. Um, and so that's why we argue for a more whole of government response that is a bit uh, more robust and proactive than what we've seen so far. Um, and certainly, I think we need to start thinking of, of disinformation as, as something that is not just securitized, but really involves people as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And you've discussed all the different elements of the, the vulnerabilities that, that we face there. And I think, you know, the, 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 the bigger um, picture on this is that um, what sets us apart from the countries that are trying to exploit those vulnerabilities? We um, are open societies. We thrive on the free exchange of information and on the freedom of our discourse. And that makes us vulnerable because bad actors can enter that environment. But ultimately, those are the values that we want to hold on to as we build resilience against this challenge. And it's also what sets us apart. It's actually what our offer uh, to the world is. Um, so I think the importance of preserving that openness um, is, is, is our strength as well as our weakness. Great. So while the current disinformation crisis is far from over, what key recommendations do you have for how democratic governments might build enduring information vigilance? Sure. So I think the key key recommendation that we have is, is for governments to be thinking about this um, in an enduring way. That's why we've termed it enduring inter information vigilance rather than these kind of one-off campaigns we've seen a lot that are often focused around in elections or other inflections, if, inflection points. We see bad actors and, and our adversaries uh, using these campaigns consistently across events um, in the buildup sometimes to elections, but, uh, but they don't stop just because an election has has uh, come and gone. And so we outline in the paper specific ways uh, to train up our civil servants and other government officials in order to recognize and counter these campaigns, um, and then make some recommendations for cross-government strategies that Henry can dive into a little bit more deeply. Yeah, that's right. I think um, some of the lessons that we need to learn are uh, from other experiences that our governments have had, notably, I think, from um, lessons we've learned very well in uh, managing uh, terrorism from the um, from the CT world, and more uh, more lately from cybersecurity. And to address those challenges, what's been required is linking up all the different parts of government that have a hand in in um, in addressing this challenge in a holistic way. So when we look at CT, obviously we've refined our ability to identify and then you know have hard interventions with terrorists but countries that have managed the threat successfully have um, also identified the vulnerabilities um, and introduced programs both nationally and internationally for uh, preventing terrorists from becoming radicalized for countering uh, violent extremism and taken this holistic approach that includes a whole range of uh, interventions that don't just involve people kicking down doors and bringing people the good news also involves, you know, <laughs> education programs, cultural programs, engagement, uh, civics, you know, um, and, and likewise from uh, cybersecurity, uh, cyber, successful cybersecurity strategies don't just play whack-a-mole with hackers, 
um, you know that you can you can do that on an enduring basis, but to actually get ahead of the threat, uh, so to get ahead of the risk, you need to actually manage the vulnerability, and that involves working uh, with um, through interventions in education curricula so that people understand the risks they face as they enter this newly digitized world, working with the private sector through your enterprise ministries um, and your industry ministries. Um, so, you know, developing uh, a joined up approach that cuts across multiple different responsibilities of government. And it's something that the um, uh, European Hybrid Center of Excellence in Helsinki has called uh, addressing the bureaucratic vulnerabilities. So finding a way that you can actually come up with um, a strategy that uh, addresses what the kind of things that would normally fall between the cracks of government department responsibilities. Oh, outstanding, outstanding. So aside from your both of your own works, what about what other recommendations would you have for further reading for our listeners? One or two top ones that would come to mind that well, uh, I really like the work of Peter Pomerantsev, which is definitely outside of the normal defense strategy uh, kind of realm. Um, he is more of a storyteller, and I think he really gets to the heart of some of these questions and problems, uh, not only in the traditional kind of transatlantic uh, information space that he travels to the Philippines and to Mexico and to countries that we often think of as potentially peripheral in these issues, but um, in many ways are warning signals to the West uh, about the information threats that we might face soon. Uh, and from my side, uh, uh, a bit more uh, inside baseball, I suppose. But yeah, going back to the uh, Hybrid Center of Excellence produced a, a, a manual on deterrence um, for policymakers, which I think is um, a really useful way to think about these concepts of modern deterrence. You know, I mean, there's uh, when, I, when I first joined government, deterrence tended to mean nuclear. Um, but, you know, thinking about how you use all the levers of government to, first of all, raise the costs of action, um, as well as reducing the adversary's benefits, um, you know, is a much smarter approach. So I think there's, there's a lot to be learned from thinking about it in a very structured way that's set out really well in their deterrence handbook. Oh, great. Super. Well, thank you for sharing your time today, Nina and Henry, on this very important topic. And we look forward